Welcome to the Financial Advisors Workshop, where Brian Castle, founder of Four Star Wealth in Chicago, interviews the most successful financial advisors in America to hear exactly how they grew their businesses to 100 million and beyond. Before we dive into the interview, please go to financialadvisorsworkshop.com and download your copy of our free guide on how to find ultra high net worth clients. Let's start the show. Here's Brian. Welcome everybody to the Financial Advisors Workshop. Uh, we're resuming uh, our quest to find the best financial advisors in America. And we've met many, many different people, but today we have a very experienced advisor with us. And uh, his name is John Jenkins. Uh, John, welcome uh, to the Financial Advisors Workshop. Well, thank you, Brian. I'm very happy to be here. Well, great. Well, John, um, uh, you you have the distinction that you have more years in the business than me, and there aren't many people that do. So you've got 40 years, I've got 38. So congratulations on 40 years. Well, thank you. I still very much love what I do. I do have to acknowledge I'm only working three days a week. Uh, but as the founder of the company, I have that privilege. Um, but like any self-employed person, you work hard and long to build an enterprise. And to some degree, I'm reaping those benefits now at this point. Keep it going, right? Yeah. Correct. Well, great. So uh, John founded Asset Preservation Strategies, uh, and, and it's part of your dedication to wealth management and financial services. But maybe you could, uh, maybe we just start right there, John. Could you just tell us, you know, um, why, what inspired you to start Asset Preservation Strategies? Uh, I'll give you the the actual experience that I had. So uh, out of college, I went into elementary school education as a teacher. And in the five years I was there, I taught um, every grade except kindergarten and, and except fourth. Uh, so I taught every other grade in the five-year time. But this was 1978 to um, 83. But I realized that um, I was only going to end up resenting it because when I started, it's a long time ago, 1978, I made a grand total of $11,000. I filed for food stamps, and the only reason I didn't receive them was that I was a musician on the side and was declaring the income. Had I not been declaring that income, I would have qualified for food stamps on my full-time teaching salary. Wow. So after two years, I started looking around because I realized I could either stay and ultimately resent it, or I could go do something else. And because education is in my blood, teaching is in my blood, I took an introductory class one evening at here at UCSD, University of California, San Diego, introductory uh, session on financial planning. And I literally came home that night and said to my wife, I know what I'm going to do professionally for the rest of my life. Nice. It was nice. a light bulb coming in. And I started immediately into the CFP program. I started getting licensed. I studied while I was a teacher. Ultimately, I resigned. I did not take a leave of absence. And two years later, when they sent me an exit survey of 50 questions, the school district did, I took one of those big felt tip markers, wrote a huge dollar sign on it, and mailed it back to them. No, no bueno. <laughs> I no more than doubled my income the first year and have never looked back. No. Yeah. Well, good for you. So, so you have a reputation of a service first uh, firm. So what does that mean? And, and, and tell us all about that. Well, it's, it's really as much a life philosophy as a business philosophy. So I have always believed to my core that if you just do the right thing, 
and you take care of clients but from a professional standpoint, do what's right for them, then the money will take care of itself. I literally have never worried about the money. If you ask me, what did you make on that case? I have no idea. Um, I can go find that information if I have to, right. but that's not how I'm wired to look because I figure as you continue to build trust with people, they give you more assets to manage. They refer you to their friends and family and it expands um, in untold ways and unknown ways. And so we're very much uh, service first. Nice. Well, that's a, that's important and, and people need to be taken care of. Um, now, you also work with multi-generational clients and create and preserve legacies. Now, how, how functionally, how do you do all that? Uh, a couple of things. So I can think off the top of my head right now that I've got uh, four families for whom I'm now working with the third generation. Um, so it starts with that philosophy again about just taking care of people. And one of the things then that we're careful about doing is involving the younger generation as our clients age. Um, if we suspect, and certainly if I'm in a meeting and I begin to suspect any impairment of cognition, any cognitive impairment on the client, I'm on the phone talking to the son, daughter, or immediate family or authorized person to say, hey, I'm noticing this when I meet with them, what's going on? And 95% of the time or more, it's already been recognized at home. Uh, they realize there's an issue. And I say at this point in time, since they trust me, they will do anything I ask them to do. They'll sign any form, which is a double-edged sword for me. So great to have your clients trust and confidence. Bad thing to be putting in front of anybody with cognitive impairment forms to sign. So we can't do that. So we then uh, require that a member of the family, a younger member, typically it's a son or daughter, uh, sometimes a grandchild, begin to attend all meetings with that client and that the client authorize them to receive all correspondence. So we immediately draw the family into the loop and keep them there. And then the second part of that is that I'm careful, even though we're not attorneys, I'm very careful with all of our clients to sketch out in a family meeting on a whiteboard their estate plan. You know, is it a trust? Does it split into A and B or not? What are the ramifications at first death? What are the ramifications at second death? And then I kind of show them how things will flow. It's the first time often that children or grandchildren have any idea how the estate plan is set up. And you don't have to reveal dollar amounts at all. You can right. just say, here's the structure of the plan that your parent or your grandparent has put in place. It's a review both for them and for you to know when and if you have to step into the role as successor trustee, how this was set up. And that in many respects binds us to that younger generation. They begin looking to us as an expert, as a resource, and we get called. So we do a very good job of retaining client assets into the second and obviously into the third generation because we involve the family early. Um, we get the authorizations to do so. And then like our clients, we take as good a care of them as we do the client. So, so why did you adopt this strategy? Is there, is there, um, is, is there some experience about if you don't do the multi-generational work that uh, works in, uh, to your detriment 
or there's uh, well, one of them was Russ Prince, you may know as an author in the financial services industry, did a study quite some years ago. It's probably 12 to 15 years ago, where the study showed that um, only 7% of clients who inherited remained with the parent's financial advisor. That's just a horrible statistic. Yeah. I, I've not tracked ours, but I can tell you that it's 50% or higher, may even be far higher, that we retain the assets generation to generation. Yeah. So when I looked at that study, I said, hey, we need to do something where we at least have an idea or an opportunity to still be the you know, professional of choice for right. the subsequent generations. And it, we're not going to do that unless we get to know them, involve them have them understand what's going on with mom and dad or grandma and grandpa and get a feel and attach a name and a face to right. what's going on. So it's, you know, this is very much a people business. And I think all too many advisors forget that when it comes to second and third generations. Yeah. Yeah. And I think those numbers are true. And we've seen that here and, and uh, any, any time a financial advisor can change that, that curve. Uh, to keep people with, I mean, that's the generational aspect of it, which is really great. So it sounds like you're doing a great job. Um, so uh, we talk about preserving legacies. So what does that mean? What, do you, what does that mean to you, like preserving legacy? Well, our firm actually has a stated goal to be here 100 years from now. And we've shared that goal with our clients. Obviously, I won't be around to see it. Neither of my two partners will be around to see it. But it's a function of setting up the business, both with that goal so that you're creating everything you're creating focused on, does this add to our longevity or does it not? Um, and so it's one of the screening questions that we use when we make business decisions. Secondly, it requires that we then recruit, train, and advance very good people to ultimate partner position. And that's much more difficult than said, obviously, and you know, thanks for grinning on that one, because I like to say that you really don't know someone until, you know, you have been with them for several months, if not a year uh, or more, and broken bread with them and their families, their spouses. Often the spouse, as you know, has more influence on what happens with their husband or wife's career than the person trying to decide individually. So if that spouse is not on board with the plan or the path, you can forget it. It's going to create dissent at home, and ultimately that falls apart in the business life. So it's about um, creating an opportunity that's attractive, and I think that's one of the things that sets us apart is that we have a path to equity ownership, and not many small firms do. Certainly, if you go to work for any of the large wirehouses, um, et cetera, there's no equity ownership other than stock in the company and or stock options, perhaps, but you're never going to be in control. Right. Here, you have an opportunity to be a controlling partner. And how does that work, John? Well, it's a it's a progression. So kind of in our minds, we're looking at somebody has to be here probably around seven years before we're talking about partnership path. And so they have to prove over and over again I can tell you, number one is going to be ethics. My strongest value, bar none, is ethics. In fact, if you want to see me get upset, impugn my ethics. Um, 
because I do get upset. So I try to be fair. It's not that we or that I have never made a mistake. Of course we have. It's a people business. And so we, with mistakes, we take responsibility. We own it. We tell our clients that we made a mistake um, and we do whatever we need to do to make it right. Um, I always tell my staff that, in fact, they'll say, well, this happened. What, what, should, what should we tell the client? And I always say the truth. Tell them the truth. People can't argue with the truth. They may not like the truth. And oftentimes, you know, when disappointments happen and we don't like what happened, but we can't argue with it because it's true. Right. Factual. And so, never, yeah, right. That removes that. So the partner path is a matter of coming in, proving your worth, showing that you can do all the tasks, that you have the ethics in place, that you're going to steward your business and your clients very well, that you have the personality traits to be a good team member and not a solo antagonist, so to speak. All of those factors uh, take place. I can tell you in 40 years, unfortunately, I've had to let go of quite a number of staff people and even a couple of advisors who ultimately, let's just say, didn't pass the people test. They had all the technology and all the skill um, uh, that you need. But you and I both know that if you can't get along in life, ultimately that relationship falls apart. That's right. So you got to get clients and never lose them. And figure out how to do that. Well, I have a lot more financial questions to ask you, but I noticed that um, outside of work, you're an avid cyclist. And how how is that, John? How's that impacted your business being a cyclist? What do you learn from all that? Well, I, w- I would preface the response to that specific question by saying several years ago. I made a decision as a business owner to stop the daily grind that many of us get into of working 60 and 70 hours a week to keep building, building, make more money, make more money, make more money. And I realized that it was costing me my health and my relationship with my spouse and children and parent. I still have a, believe it or not, a 99-year-old mother who's doing very well living on her own. Um, So I want to spend time with them and obviously uh, enjoy a much more rounded or balanced lifestyle. So I made that decision quite a number of years ago, which is why, as I mentioned, I'm only working three days a week now at this point and have for the last about four and a half, almost five years, Um, because lifestyle and a balanced life is much more important to me than earning another dollar. And so cycling came about some years ago, probably 15 years ago. I mean, we all grew up riding bikes, but as a teenager, my mother could tell you that I would disappear. And in San Diego, I would call her from a payphone because this is, you know, when I was a teenager, there were no cell phones to tell her where I was. And she'd say, you're 25 miles from here. How are you getting back? And I'd say the same way I got there. I pedal. So that was on an old Schwinn 10-speed that weighed probably 40 pounds when I was a teenager. Uh, didn't ride as an adult, raising children and building a business. And about 15 years ago, I got back on a bike, bought a road bike. <laughs> the only question my wife had is, are those the ones with the skinny tires? And I said, yes, honey, those are the ones with the skinny tires. But <laughs> I ride quite a bit. Um, this past year, I rode 3,650 miles. Um, Year before, 4,250. I try to set at least a $4,000 or 4,000, excuse me, mile minimum. I don't always hit it because I tell everybody my cycling is dependent A, on my health, B, on my wife's health, C, on my mother's health, and D, on the weather. All right. 
if any of those goes bad, I'm not writing. You're not writing, yeah. That's how it is. Well, it's a great thing to do. Um, and, and also, you're a lymphoma survivor. And I, I suspect that might have affected you and your uh, objective to be a servant leader and, and such. Yeah, it did. And, it, and I am very actually open about that, both with clients and with friends and family, because, you know, all of us, in my view, are a lot more fragile than we will let on in our persona, whether at work or even in family gatherings and professional gatherings, et cetera. And I don't mean fragile from a weakness standpoint. I mean that we all have challenges in our lives, personal challenges, health challenges. I don't know anybody who has an absolutely perfect life where there's no problems, no challenges, no stress, no health issues, nothing. I sort of grin every time I say that because everybody grins as well and realizes, yeah, we're all carrying some degree of burden, whatever it is. And so that's a challenge that for me goes all the way back to 1991 when I was first diagnosed with um, large B-cell non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, received radiation treatment at that time. It basically disappeared until about um, three years ago and then came back basically 28 years later in the same spot, who knows why. Um, They excised it at that time. And uh, it's come back twice since, very small. Um, and so, believe it or not, I'm starting an Im- immunotherapy treatment uh, on the 16th of this month, four doses intravenous, uh, of a drug called Rituxan, which is targets lymphoma cells only. Okay. Built on the new mRNA technology. And I'm looking forward to that being successful and doing what it's designed to do. So that probably affects your cycling a little bit as well. Well, it does. And I don't know how I'll respond to the intravenous treatments. Um, So I would imagine my cycling over the next month as I receive those treatments will be less than normal. But I've already asked them about that. And they said, I wouldn't cycle the day of or even the day after. But if you're feeling good two days later, go out and cycle. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'll do. That's great. Well, you got a great lifestyle and you got a great business. Um, and, uh, you know, good luck on the, on the, on the treatments. Um, so my, my thought leads back to the business then as well. Like, how do you, I mean, this is a pretty rough environment last year, 2022, this is our first, uh, our first financial advisor workshop discussion for 2023. And we're really glad 2022 ended, um, because now we can have a new lease on life, a new year. How do you operate in this kind of challenging environment, John? Well, number one is communication. Um, All too many advisors, and we've seen this throughout history, sort of um, run from bad news, meaning they don't want to pick up the phone or send an email to a client when the account's down or the economy's horrible or whatever it is. We're just the opposite. It's back to that. Tell them the truth. Um, So we're very communicative and proactive about um, we do, like many advisors, take discretionary control of our accounts. So we've made some moves to go much more conservative over the last year. Um, we had a number of trading strategies in place that would protect uh, on the downside, et cetera. So while clients' accounts are down, my own included, um, they're down much less than I think the average buy and hold investor would be. Um, and Um, Clients know, and particularly now with 40 years of experience, I can tell them, you know, there has never been a permanent downturn. If there were, this country would be bankrupt. Right. So 
it always goes back up, right? Ultimately, in, in my saving graces, I say, look, worldwide, we consume. We eat, we travel, we buy things. Even when times are difficult, we're still buying things. We need the staples to run our households. Uh, we need gas to get around or electricity if we're riding in an EV. Um, you know, there are things we need and all those basics alone are being purchased and continue to be purchased irrespective of what's going on with the economy. When things get good again, so to speak, then the discretionary dollars will begin to flow again into those industries and those companies. Uh, we expect that to be tight for a while because we don't know how much the Federal Reserve is going to continue on its rate increase path, let alone where they will stop. I do tell clients that the Federal Reserve has a horrible track record of engineering soft landings. They really have never been able to do that. So typically they overcorrect, throw us into recession, and then we have to climb our way out of recession. And there are, as you know, many people saying we're already in recession. Yes. But I think we probably already are. I think you're right. But um, okay, so so you're getting more conservative. Then let's talk about managing client income strategies. Uh, income was low, interest rates are low, now they're going up. Uh, is that helping that strategy? And then how are you positioning yourself? Yeah, we, uh, it is helping that strategy because now we can get yield on uh, bonds or U.S. treasuries or whatever. So uh, in many cases, not all, we've been buying short-term treasuries, um, three to six months. And part of that is we're waiting for when we get signals to go back into the market um, and we don't have to wait very long if it's a three-month or a six-month. Uh, and those yields are now above 4%. So clients are getting uh, a decent rate of return while we're on the sidelines, so to speak. Now, you mentioned signals. How do you do signals? Like, what kind of signals do you get? Are they proprietary? Well, we we subscribe to several different research companies. And so part of what we look at are the signals that they're saying about when they believe it's time to buy. I look for something that I call disintermediation. So I'll give you an example. Okay. Um, we subscribe, as I mentioned, to several research houses. Pretty much, they're all saying the same thing right now. They say it differently, but the theme is the same, that the Fed is still tightening, that it's going to get worse before it gets better. It's all fine. Disintermediation for me is when that message among those four or five different research houses starts to vary. And one saying something completely different than the others, or two are saying something completely different than the others. Usually, I will use that kind of information to get out of a sector. So if everybody is following a certain sector, and everybody is gung-ho on that sector, and suddenly one or two of them are mixed, that's usually when I get out. Mm -hmm. That served us pretty well in the past uh, in terms of managing um, over allocation or focus on any one sector of the market. Um, so we'll look for that. But even on the downside, you know, I'm not so sure we'll use that kind of information for when to get back in. And when we do get back in and clients know this, it will be sort of one step at a time uh, with companies that we believe are stable and will be around and, you know, still pay a dividend and, you know, et cetera. Uh, yes, the price may be volatile. Um, but we'll get there. And, and that leads me, just prompts one quick story, which as I mentioned, you know, the 99-year-old mother, this happened with her back in 2013 when um, Alan Greenspan was the uh, Treasury Secretary. And they were looking at uh, 
easing, the quantitative easing program and, and the, you know, tapering the stimulus. And so, as you, if you recall, in April of that year, the bond market reacted pretty vociferously to that. The average bond fund was down about 5% in net asset value in two weeks' time. So my mother, who, because of her age, has a lot of municipal bonds, got her statement and called me and in this tone said, I've lost $35,000. And, and my response was, I'm fine, and how are you? <laughs> And then she, I heard her take a breath and I said, you haven't lost a penny, <clears throat> excuse me. You will lose it if I sell those bonds, which are worth less on paper right now. Would you like me to do that? And then I waited and she said, well, no, what do you mean? I said, yes, it's down in value, but we bought individual bonds, which means when they mature, they'll mature at par or hundred percent of what you paid for them. You'll get all your money back. You lose money only if I sell them between now, between purchase date and when they mature. I don't plan to sell them until they mature. They'll mature. I said, you need to pay attention to income. If your income goes down, call me. But disregard the statement because we're just buying bonds that we hold to maturity. And so what they're worth month over month is irrelevant. It doesn't matter at all. So you haven't lost a penny, but follow your income. If that changes for some reason and I haven't called you, then please call me. So she calmed and, you know, in a much more calm tone said, thank you very much. <laughs> so. so keep them focused on the long term and what's really going on. Yeah, that's great. And you're a good counselor in that area. Um, so we also understand that your firm, quote, unquote, gives back in a meaningful way. And and, and how, how do you do that? In addition to serving clients, how do you give back? So... That is one of our values is the principle of uh, reciprocity. So giving back. Um, we actually adhere to and belong to an organization called 1%. And it's a, um, you can just go to 1%.org. And we've made a pledge to contribute 1% of our profit uh, and or employee time in philanthropic endeavors or support. So there are a number of uh, philanthropic organizations here locally, and even some are national organizations that we support, either through donation or appearing and attending their galas, their fundraisers. Um, we just recently, uh, Monica uh, Sakos, our president, and I appeared on local television supporting the Helen Woodward Animal Center here in San Diego County which um, takes in literally all stray animals and abandoned animals and nurses them back to health, makes them available for adoption. And uh, we made a donation uh, to their fundraiser and appeared very briefly on television to put the big check, as you know, for what we were giving them and a, a very quick interview about why we support them. So that's just one of many uh, organizations that we share that 1% with. And we, we end up giving more than that because when you attend the gala, it's pretty well expected you're going to bid on the silent auction or you're going <laughs> to do something uh, to contribute a little more. And we have no problem doing that. That's great. So how many philanthropic groups are you like a leader of or on the board? Or? Uh, I'm on an executive committee with uh, Rady Children's Hospital here in San Diego County. It's called the uh, Executive Committee for the uh, Hospital Foundation. Okay. I've been on that committee for many years. And the idea there, since children, uh, well, it's one of our 
let's put it this way, Radies is one of our recipients. Uh, we just helped them with their quote, light the way campaign. And my wife and I have um, actually matched contributions uh, up to $10,000 recently. So we just made a $10,000 contribution to Radies before year end. You need that tax deduction, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, they have a special place in my heart because um, my wife and I adopted uh, two boys who are now 32 and 33 um, when they were two and four and they were special needs and received services at Radies Hospital. It wasn't named Rady then, it was just Children's Hospital. And so, uh, and also my daughter who's in her uh, early forties is diabetic and she was first taken to Children's Hospital when she was diagnosed with diabetes. So they have a special place in my heart. And in fact, they're included in my wife's and my estate. Okay. Well, interesting. Um, well, uh, you, you seem to be the total package, John. It's quite an interesting, uh, interesting life. Um, looking back at our industry a little bit, um, what do you think, is there anything missing in today's planning environment? Um, I think the only thing missing is that um, while we have gone wholeheartedly into technology and deservedly so, it's making the industry more efficient. Uh, information is pretty much instantly available and we can process business quickly. We can do all those wonderful things. I continue to remind advisors that this is a people business. Sitting mm -hmm. down belly button to belly button, uh, whites of the eyes to whites of the eyes is much more important than yours or my technological expertise. Uh, and you're, you saw some articles, as I did, toward the end of the year, where people who've been using robo-advisors are much less satisfied in economic environments like this because there's nobody to talk to. Right. Nobody need to explain. Yeah, yeah. So. so and that, that same is for financial advisors. So working with other people, at least you have someone to bounce ideas off of. Correct. That's great. That's great. So um, that's one of the lessons you, you've learned is you, you need people around you. Are there any other big lessons uh, that you'd like to share with us from your 40-year career? Um, the only other big lesson, and it's as simple as it sounds, I think it makes all the difference. I was interviewed by Financial Planning Magazine many years ago and even got the cover picture of that quick funny story at advisor with the same broker dealer at the time from Baltimore who called me one morning and said, what the hell are you doing on the cover of financial planning magazine? And I started laughing and I knew exactly who it was. And uh, so then he congratulated me, but he yanked my chain first as you know, we all have friends that do that. Yeah. It was pretty cute. But in that article, they asked me to what did I attribute my success? And I thought literally only for a few seconds. And I said, Literally, it boils down to this. It's saying, please, thank you, and doing what you say you're going to do. And unfortunately, all too often nowadays, those are the exception, not the rule. When you think about it, especially the doing what you say you're going to do, following through all the way until all the T's are crossed and all the I's are dotted. And you can ask the client, have we met your expectation? Have we completed the job? All too often, we're so busy, we're entering the trades or, you know, putting the plan together or whatever, and we move on to the next, next, and the client's kind of left, was well, this it? Are we done? How does this go from here? 
So it's it's we do a 45 day after implementation meeting with the client. It's been Zoom more in the last couple of years than in person. But sure. that's to answer those questions. Anything puzzling you? What about you know new statements coming in? Are you confused by anything? Can review the plan? Do you know? And then then we start our regular review statement after that. But that 45 day um, appointment that we call simply um, you know the understanding appointment is after it's all done because clients have taken a big leap of faith when they decide to work with an advisor. Um, is when it's all when the plan is fully implemented, we want to make sure they understand it's fully implemented. They shouldn't be expecting anything else until we get to now the review schedule. Right. So it's communication. Yeah. Sounds like keeping in touch. Yeah. Well, good. So, um, what what do you see things uh, developing? Um, what, what kinds of things do you see developing here, like the financial planning industry? Where do you think we're heading based on what we're seeing today coming out of the pandemic, um, new, you know, new tools, new ways to operate and any, any vision for the future? Well, you know, clearly technology has taken the lead. And as you know, there's been a lot of consolidation in the financial services industry and, you know, the large firms in, in, in effect buying up the smaller firms. Um, there's a lot of that going on. I still think there will always be room for the small boutique size business, which we run and operate with very specific client niches um, and client needs that big firms are never going to be able to address. And most of our clients and yours and the advisors across the country are not going to have the kind of net worth where they can hire the wealth management divisions of KPMG, Pete Marwick, or, you know, any of the large accounting firms or wealth management uh, companies that deal with, you know, hedge funds and private investment. We do some of that kind of work for clients, but we don't hold ourselves out as solely a um, firm that deals only with ultra high net worth clients. We have some, but that's really not what we hold ourselves out to be. Okay. Interesting. Well, great. Well, I think we're coming to the end here. And you've, you've given us some really good insights. Uh, you have a great practice and you have a great life. Uh, are there any other messages? You, this this uh, the video series and then the podcast will be heard by probably a thousand people over the next six months. So imagine yourself, you're in the auditorium and they're all collected and they're looking at you right now. Are there any other messages you want to share with everybody? I would just reiterate the two things that I say. They buy you. They don't buy the product the plan they buy you and secondly would be always tell the truth underline always nice nice great it's a great message and you're a great inspiration for our industry so thank you thank you john very very much for joining us today on the financial advisors workshop and uh, we look forward to checking in with you again later on and learning more about your biking and and how the cancer is going and everything else uh, it's fabulous. And 2023 is going to be a great year. And uh, we look forward to your leadership. Thanks very much, Brian. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the ideas shared here, please subscribe to the show and leave us a five-star review on iTunes and Spotify and share this episode with anyone you think will also find value here. Please send us your follow-up questions at financialadvisorsworkshop.com. And while you're there, download our guide on how to find ultra-high net worth clients. And if you're a financial advisor looking for more freedom, 
higher margins, and better training. Please set up a consultation to hear more about joining our team by going to fourstarwealth.com slash advisors. All right, thanks for listening. And until the next Financial Advisor Workshop, keep on growing, everyone.